and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy, my partner in crime, with me. How are you doing tonight, Darcy? I'm doing pretty good. I'm having a brownie and a beer right now, which is a weird combination, but it's working what? for me. I know, right? It's weird. <laughs> Sweet. I'm, I'm enjoying a rum and coke. Mm. Cheers to that. Clink. <laughs> so this has been a kind of a rough week for me. Um, I tripped last weekend, uh, uh, ran out to the car to grab something and kind of misjudged the step on the way back and sort of did a nosedive into the doorstop and broke my nose. God. Right? That's fun. Yeah. That's fun. (laughs) So like, not only did it break my nose, but I took all the skin off my shins, my knees and my elbows. Mm. And um, because I broke the nose down, like it, it cut the where I landed and like a mm-hmm. big air bubble got stuck in between because it was down to the bone, which is not that significant because the skin right there is very, very thin anyway. Right. So when it happened, I kind of rolled over and immediately put my hands up to my face because I thought I knocked my teeth out. Um, oh my god! My number one concern is I thought I knocked my teeth out because everything was just kind of mm-hmm. numb, which happens to me anytime I get hurt. Is it just everything just goes numb? My body just is like, really nope, we're good. Oh, interesting. Um, and then I kind of rolled over and yelled out because the door was open. Like I'm glad that the door was open because if the door had not been open, I probably would have crashed into the door and. <laughs> I don't know what other Oof. kind of damage that I would have had, but the door was open, so I just kind of landed on the door stop and called out um, for Mike and was like, help. And he came running out, and of course I have my hands up to my face, and there's just blood coming out from my nose, inside the nose, and outside the nose. And oh my gosh. I'm just covered in it all over my front and blood all over my face, and he's just has no idea what happened. Um, I took some of the skin off the side of my face where I landed as well. I think I went to the side a little bit um, because I definitely had a lot more swelling on the right-hand side. It was probably twice as much yeah. swelling and, and damage on the right-hand side and no scraping or cuts on the left-hand side. Yeah, and you can see you're kind of recovering from a black eye on the on the right side, Well, you too. should have seen it a couple of days ago. It was lovely. Mm. It was purple. Now it's faded to a disgusting shade of yellow. So Yeah, that, that <laughs> lovely yellow-green color. And then my eyes were like all rimmed around the lids in like this reddish just grossness Mm. so it looked like i had on red eyeliner on both eyes always a classy look yeah so that was fun i spent the entire um last weekend in the emergency room on saturday um it happened about 11 o'clock in the afternoon and i didn't leave until six or seven o'clock in the evening And it was odd because, you know, with this whole COVID thing going on, no one's allowed in the hospital except the people that are actually sick and the nurses, mm-hmm. right? Or the doctors and nurses. So it was eerily quiet. And, like, you just didn't see anyone. So I sat in the hallway for, I don't know, probably an hour before they got a room yeah. for me. And I'm sitting there and I didn't, they didn't weren't able to clean me up yet because they have to like do the examination or whatever so i'm sitting in the mm-hmm. hallway in this wheelchair because i was i passed out essentially i kind of rolled over and felt dizzy and just passed out Jesus. for probably about 20 or 30 seconds um and then while i was passed out mike called 911 because he was like i have no he idea, had no what idea what's <laughs> like going there's on. blood everywhere <laughs> like I, I don't know um so uh, and that's the reason I called 911 and I went to the hospital. So I'm sitting there and I was really dizzy and kind of weak. And I hadn't eaten anything that day yet. And 
blood all over me and I'm sitting in this hall and people are walking by just looking at me like, what in the heck yeah. happened to you? You weird, freaky girl. I had no shoes on because I had my slippers on and they just kind of flew off when I landed. Oh. <laughs> so I just looked like some oh. weird homeless person with blood on my, my hair was just like in a tangle, like in the back with like blood caking in it and just it was awful jesus just a really really traumatic experience so kind of recovering from that still a little bit congested and nasal sounding but i don't think it's that bad and most people that see it are like oh hey you you barely look like you broke anything and i couldn't tell that you broke your nose and i'm like well that's nice because i can definitely feel it right (laughs) it broke at the bridge like right between my eyes pretty much Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of that pressure there now, and you feel like a little bit of a headache all the time. And yeah. you can't blow your nose, and you can't sneeze, and yawning hurts, and Ugh. so it's fun. Good times. It's definitely yeah. broken on, because you see the bones like in a, almost like a circle, and it's uh-huh. broken on the left, or the right side. Okay. Which is odd, because I, yeah. I have no idea about the anatomy of a nose, but you could definitely see it. It's not... They called it a non-displaced fracture. Okay, yeah. So the bone just didn't... It just broke where it was. It didn't, like, get shifted out of place. Yeah. Well, I mean, it did, but only slightly. Mm-hmm. Like, a millimeter, they said. Which, mm-hmm. they don't think it's noticeable to anyone, but when I look at my nose now, it definitely looks crooked. Like, it's... <laughs> yeah. Way well, and when you try and breathe, it's obviously it's gonna. It feels like there's resistance there because it's not how you normally breathe. Yeah, good times, fun stuff. <laughs> oh boy, I've never broken a bone before, so for real? Yeah, nothing oh ever. And I've had a lot of accidents, so I think I've been really, really lucky all these years. And I, I just was. I feel so lucky that I didn't break my teeth out or bust my teeth. Yeah, because the way I landed was just, and I caught myself with my hands. And I still hit my head because the doorstop was probably about, I don't know, half a foot up, like a step up. Yeah. Yeah. And so I caught myself. And if it was the, the plain ground, I probably wouldn't have hit. But because there was that slight lift there, I hit the doorstop mm-hmm. instead of the ground. And my hands are just like, I thought I broke like the the thumb, the palm mm-hmm. where the thumb is because it was just, it was twice the size of the other one. And it was, it hurt. I couldn't even put my fingers together. Yeah. Um, but recovering now on the mend, getting back to <laughs> swing of things. Jesus. Having a drink now to celebrate the fact that I am going to be okay. Yeah. Well earned, a well earned beverage. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if anybody could say they had a rough week, it, it would be me. Yeah. For real. You <laughs> fell on your face. <laughs> Literally like. fell on my face. <laughs> So you um, told me that. I think my reaction was like, Jesus Christ. And you sent me that picture and I was like, oh my gosh, like you looked like you got beat up. I went into work and um, just because it's a short week for us this week, we had today off. And so I was like, well, if I can just push my way through the week and I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing is, we have this mandate. You have to wear a face mask and you have to wear eye protective eyewear because I work in an area where you walk through the actual repair area to get to our mm-hmm. offices. And so I can't wear glasses and I can't wear a face mask because anything touching my nose is just, excruciating. Yeah. So yeah. they were like, you should go home. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. yeah, I probably should. Shouldn't I? <laughs> 
So that has been a challenge. I, I know I've gone into a couple of different stores and I'll wear it on the like my mouth, but I can't have anything touching my nose right now. And people are like, you mm. know, that face mask works much more effectively if you put it over your nose. And I look at them and I'm like, you can't tell that my nose is broken. Like for right. real, I have two black eyes. Like seriously, right. mind your own business. Yeah. <laughs> like leave me alone. I'm good. Um, so yeah, you, that you would was, if you could, but you yeah, can't. Yeah. I could try, but it really hurts and my nose might start Mm -hmm. bleeding. So please leave me alone. Yeah, that's not a good look. No. So I've got an interesting case today and I don't think you've heard about this one. Um, Okay. And I got a lot of my evidence. There was an article, I think, um, from Hoda. Kotob, you know, the, the oh, lady the from Today, Today Show? Yeah, like America, yeah she wrote an ar- she did an interview and kind of wrote an article about it. And then oh. there was a forensic files episode called Needle in a Haystack, Ooh. Um, which was really, really good. This particular case happened in 2005, and it's Michelle, the case of Michelle Herndon. So have you heard of it? The name's kind of familiar, but I'm not 100% sure yet. So let's take it back to 2005. Let's take it back. What happened in 2005? Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005. Yeah, it did. Major, major events. Um, A lot of people lost their lives in that. Over 1,600 people perished. YouTube was created in 2005. Auburn won the Sugar Bowl in 2005 because they got ripped off from preseason polls, even though they were undefeated. They didn't play for the national championship. I'm, no, I'm fine. I'm over it. Oil prices rose sharply that year because of the Hurricane Katrina issue. Mm-hmm, I remember that. George W. Bush was in his second term as the 43rd president of the U.S. Yes, he was. Uh, there was a major earthquake in Iran. More than 500 people were killed and over 1,000 were injured. That was a pretty big one. Mm. Uh, Pope John Paul II died. And over 4 million people traveled Mm -hmm. to the Vatican to mourn him. There was an 8.7 earthquake in Sumatra. That was a pretty big one. And a 7.6 in Kashmir in Pakistan. Hmm. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger had been elected the new pope. Mm -hmm. Tony Blair was elected for a third term in the UK. Uh, Prince Wales married Camilla Parker Bowles. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Disneyland celebrated its 50th birthday. I still had a flip uh, phone, I think. <laughs> right? 2005. It just really doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but Lance Armstrong also won a record seventh straight Tour de France. Whoa. Before his scheduled retirement. And complete downfall. <laughs> Get this one. Dennis Rader, BTK, was mm. charged with 10 counts of murder in Wichita, Kansas that year. I do remember that. Following eight years of wrangling in the courts, Terry Schiavo's feeding tube was removed. Mm. Remember that? She yep. died 13 days later. The, assisted su- the huge assisted suicide case. Yep. Hurricane Stan hit Mexico and killed over 1,600 people. Hmm. Uh, the Olympic Park bomber was sentenced to multiple life sentences. Eric Rudolph. Mm-hmm. We should do yeah. him. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, Michael Jackson was found not uh-huh. guilty in the child molestation charges that year. And he died just like two years yeah, later? just like real quick after that. Yeah. Oh, U.S. Supreme Court ruled medicinal use of marijuana 
users could be prosecuted for violating federal drug laws. So despite the fact that many states were starting to become um, allowing people to use it medicinally, they could still be prosecuted Mm -hmm. federally for it. And interestingly enough, President Bush acknowledged he'd personally authorized a secret eavesdropping program in the U.S. following September 11th. Huh. Remember when that was a big, like, secret that came out? For real. (laughs) And now it's just accepted that we do it all the time? What's interesting is that year as well, the Spanish flu virus was reconstructed and shown to be closely related to the avian flu virus. So it's part of that coronavirus group mm. very mm-hmm. very interesting popular films during that time were harry potter never Star saw Wars it. three never saw chronicles it. of narnia never saw it king kong madagascar mr and mrs it. smith charlie and the chocolate factory batman begins hitch crash brokeback mountain capote and walk the line mm. so interesting time in history there that was when crash won the best picture and it should have been brokeback mountain yeah, anyway. it was very, very... Um, I think we were trying towards progressing as a people and as a country. We were trying, but we still just weren't, weren't well, quite there at that time. Yeah, and it was also still George W. Bush, and he was, you know, the one who, like, God told him to be president, and the evangelical movement was really big, and, like, they didn't even show Brokeback Mountain in the theater in my college town at Auburn. So like it's hard to believe that was 15 years ago. Yeah. Like doesn't it seem like it like hearing all those things that happened it feels like it was decades ago. Oh yeah. But it was yeah. really 15 years ago. Like mm-hmm. not that long ago. Yeah. But in any case the unexplained death of a young woman surprised medical experts in a Florida town. Here is the mysterious death of Michelle Herndon which happened in 2005 in Gainesville, Florida which is the location okay. of the University of Florida, the Gators, right? Yep, yep. It was fall when this happened, smack dab in the middle of football season. And we all know how crazy college towns get during football season. You know, this is before mm-hmm. quarantine, obviously. We don't know about any of that now because this has been just an insane, different time in our history. But typically college towns during that period of time in the fall when football season is about to start just get wild people really get into it it's very social very um fan oriented and i don't think these were the years of tim tebow but i think he was just a couple years away where florida would win the national championship yeah so i mean like florida florida football they're part of the sec which is part of the conference that i'm that auburn is in and it's 2008 is when they won i think um, but it's, yeah, it's a big thing for them. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's massive. So classes had just gotten back in session and people were just getting back to the books. Michelle Herndon was 24 that fall and she was entering her senior year. So she was a little okay. bit older, I think, than the average student. I believe I was like 21, 22 when I was a senior. So she's a couple years older. So Michelle yeah. was really kind of an environmentally conscious person. She was really into lots of different things like World Wildlife Fund, animal relief. She worked at a primate sanctuary at one time. She loved apes. She volunteered at homeless shelters. She felt really strongly about the planet and felt like we were caretakers. Um, She was born in Live Oaks, Florida, in a small town just south of the Georgia border on July 15th, 1981. 
Um, she was very tall and athletic with long blonde hair, very, very confident and kind of the center of attention when she entered any room. But again, she was, she had this sort of a, a thing where she felt like it was her job to help protect the planet, to help save the planet. Mm -hmm. And one time she got out of her car in a target parking lot because she saw somebody throw a cup out of their car. And she was just like, oh, no, this is not happening. Mm-hmm. Pick that up. And like, there's a garbage can right there. Like, get it together. Oh, she yelled at them. Yes. She didn't pick it up herself? No, she oh, was wow. like, you have a responsibility. We are caretakers for this planet. She donated money each month to help sponsor a needy child. Wow. She lived off campus. And sometimes she was in sort of shady neighborhoods. But she really refused to be afraid. It was her mm-hmm. area where she was living. She started recycling programs wherever she went. She worked the early morning shift at a gym as a personal trainer to make money to help kind of make ends meet. She took in all the strays and actually had dinners with groups of friends together to kind of get everyone together and people that didn't have families to go to. So she was just kind of a really friendly, sweet, giving, loving, and kind of a nurturing person. You can really tell that she sort of took the strays in and tried to help them and fix them and make them feel comfortable and welcome. So she already yeah. had plans for after she was graduating, she was going to go do some volunteer work. It was, she left Africa. And like, that was one of the things that she really wanted to do was join the Peace Corps and work with people that were suffering from AIDS, these communities in Africa that were suffering okay. from AIDS. And that was a huge thing for her. She was super excited about it. And she just, she knew what she was going to do. She had a purpose in her life, which I don't think mm-hmm. many people do at that age. Uh, when you're just getting ready to graduate oh, from no. college, it's, it's a really scary time, but she was very secure in what she knew she was going to be doing. Yeah. Uh, she was very, very ambitious. She was engaged, sort of. So I kind of read some differing sort of viewpoints on that. She had dated a guy named Jason off and on for about four years. He lived about three, 400 miles away from her, kind of from where she was from. And they had sort of a long distance relationship and they were off again and on again. But At the time that this whole thing happened, they were talking about marriage and moving in that direction. A lot of people said that they were engaged and called him her fiance, but uh, I heard some differing accounts. So Jason was the guy that she was seeing at that time. She was very, very fit and athletic, and she kept all of her life on a very predictable schedule. But right before Thanksgiving, she surprised everyone by failing to show up to any of her classes or work. She also wasn't returning anyone's calls. So this was a huge thing for her and very, very unlike Mm -hmm. her. And so immediately people just started freaking out like this is something's wrong. Her boyfriend, Jason, was so concerned that he got in his car and drove the 400 miles to from Miami to Gainesville to find out what was going on with her because it he was not used to not hearing from her. And he got in his car, I think, at like three or four o'clock in the morning and drove there because he was just that concerned. Mm. He just had this feeling, and I think a lot of people really had sort of a gut feeling that something was off with this. So when he gets to her apartment, he sees that everything is completely locked. All the windows and doors are locked as well, and her dog is barking. So her dog is inside and barking. Her dog, Duke, was like her baby. And according to her friends and Mm -hmm. family, she would have never left him alone or taken off without him. So Jason knows there's something going on. And Mm -hmm. all the lights were on inside the house as well. And the television was on. And he, Jason, the boyfriend, is walking around the house but can't actually get in. And he sees through a little sliver in the blinds, he sees a foot in Michelle's bedroom. Her, Her foot was actually sticking out. 
and he's calling and knocking and trying to get attention but there's no movement except for the dog barking on the inside and he immediately calls the police and they make entry into the home where they find michelle in her bedroom face down on the floor dead with her left arm underneath her body now what's particularly perplexing about this case is that there was no trauma no bruises no blood no wounds no broken bones no signs of a struggle and they're okay. just like, what the heck? What killed this girl? I mean, she's a perfectly healthy, athletic, 24-year-old woman. Like, how would she die? And there's not, like, pill bottles nope. around. Or, well, it didn't look like an obvious drug nope. overdose or anything There was like a that. half of a bottle of beer on the bed beside her, and that was pretty much it. So at first glance, hmm. this really looked like a natural death. Her position on the bed was a little bit unusual, though. Normally, when a person is sick or dying, according to experts, they don't lay face down. They usually fall and lay down on their side or their back. That's kind of the most common position. So immediately that kind of strikes some of the people that are looking at this as a little bit odd. Police inspect the apartment and find no unusual fingerprints or signs of any kind of forced entry. So whoever did this, if they did do something, knew her. So this was somebody Mm -hmm. that was known to her. No valuables were gone. Her money, her wallet, her jewelry, everything was there. There was no break-in, no robbery. Mm -hmm. That's not a factor. And there's no indication of suicide either. Typically, when someone is going to commit suicide, there'd be pill bottles or something next to them and Mm -hmm. some sort of a note. And there's nothing, okay? One half of a bottle of beer was next to her on the bed, as I mentioned. And her prints were on the bottle, but there was no sign that she had gotten drunk and there were other beers in the fridge, And when they looked in her fridge, she looked like a healthy person that keeps good care of her body. Besides the beers, there was mostly Mm -hmm. just fruits and vegetables and healthy type things that they thought it was very odd for a college student because she obviously was a very healthy person. There was no signs that she had passed out or was drunk. And they thought at that point, maybe somebody had put something in the beer. So they checked out the beer bottle and there was no signs that there was anything in the beer bottle either. No foreign substances on, in, or around the bottle. And medical examiners at that point were just baffled because this is a perfectly healthy young woman who has died of natural causes. And that just is not a normal thing. Yeah, it's mysterious. And in most cases, too, the medical examiner can get in there and find a cause of death pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And the cause and manner of death are usually pretty easy to determine. But this was sort of a different case. They decide at that point that they're going to do an autopsy, and the medical exam- examiner, again, is stumped. There's nothing even slightly wrong or unusual with this young woman. And it was estimated, after looking at her autopsy, that she had died about 24 hours before her body was found. So, okay. at that point, investigators immediately get on to everything in the immediate area and start interviewing anyone that knows Michelle. And anyone that had any contact her within the last 24 hours. They Sorry, the- can I ask a question sure. real quick? Um, did she have, was she living in a house or an apartment? She's an apartment. Townhouse? An apartment building. Okay, so she, and the neighbors didn't, obviously don't know anything. Um, the neighbors did see a slight looking, a slightly built man with glasses on about 24 hours prior to that in the parking lot and around Michelle's apartment. Okay. So the police then take that information and start looking around at everybody. They look at her fiance. He was interviewed and quickly taken off the suspect list because he was at work Mm -hmm. and his alibi was absolutely airtight. 
But then when they're looking into all these clues, the medical examiner actually sees something odd in Michelle's left arm. There's actually a tiny mark that they'd missed on previous inspection. And it's smaller than a normal pin, a normal needle mark. It was like a puncture wound. Okay. And Michelle's doctor said that she had not had any blood drawn. There were no injections. The medical examiner then asked investigators to go to the crime scene and sort of widen their search to look for any signs of a possible drug overdose. Which, again, no one that knew Michelle thought that she had any involvement with drugs. Right. And they knew that. But they still, they couldn't leave any stone unturned when it comes to that sort of a thing. Sure. So they start looking around her apartment and see that there are trash cans a little bit outside of her apartment. And all of them were empty because the trash had just been emptied. But then they look down and they see a bag on the ground that had fallen out clearly when they had emptied the trash. It's like, a you know, the plastic grocery bag, like uh-huh. a Bonds bag or whatever that is. And they look inside of this and... Inside of the bag, there is a prescription. There are two prescription-type bottles, two vials of something called propofol, some syringes, a pediatric butterfly IV, and then a bunch of, like, papers and kind of mail-type things. Okay. They know that it's Michelle's because her mail is inside the bag with the medical supplies. So it was like... So I use those, like, grocery bags as, like, trash bags from my bathroom. Yes. So it's probably something like so that, right? Yes. It appears that she had used one of those little small, like, type grocery bags inside her apartment, and she'd put some trash in there, and whoever used these drugs, the propofol, mm-hmm. had put them in this bag and put them outside in the trash can, and it just somehow had fallen out when they had mm. emptied the cans. You know, when they put them on the trash truck, they'll put them upside down, and sometimes things will fall uh-huh. out. Well... Coincidentally, and luckily for them, this this single bag f- fell out. And I think it's probably because it was really light and maybe the wind blew and it just sort of fell out. Right. Pediatric butterflies could have left that tiny mark like the one found in Michelle's left arm. But there were no fingerprints or DNA found on any of the items that they could see on first blush. Who has so, access to that? Here's the deal, though. Propofol. Yeah. What's Propofol. Um, It's a short-acting medication that causes a decreased level of consciousness and a lack of memory. Mm -hmm. It's generally used with anesthesia and sedation for mechanically ventilated adults or sedation for medical procedures. Yeah, my dad just um, had shoulder surgery and he, they gave him propofol as the sedative. Right, so it's given by injection into the vein of the patient and takes about two minutes to work and Mm -hmm. usually lasts about five to ten minutes depending on what the dosage is and it causes people to sleep Mm -hmm. for surgery and medical procedures but too much of this particular drug can cause death in a matter of minutes that's what sometimes um, even seconds yeah that's how that's what michael jackson died from isn't that crazy propofol it's also very commonly used in a colonoscopy yeah no it's I think a common surgical drug, but it's not something that you would find laying on the ground outside of, you know, a hospital. No, right? No, so you very, shouldn't very have odd. access to that. Yeah. Um, and so they ask the investigators, ask the toxicology folks to screen for that when they look at her toxicology reports, because it's not something that's usually tested for in a drug screening. Right, especially for like a twenty-year-old girl. Exactly. You're not going to look for propofol. A healthy, perfectly healthy, normal. Yeah. 20- and she wasn't in the medical field either. So all the tests came back positive. Surprise, surprise. Mm. 
they could not determine exactly how much propofol Michelle was given, only that it was a lethal dose, mm. which is horrifying. So evidently the killer had used a pediatric sized needle to make the tiny mark that was found on Michelle's left arm. Jesus. And they believe the death was the work of someone that worked in the medical field because the sh- not only would it take somebody having access to those in the medical field, but like the precision which he put that needle in left no marks, no, what is it called? Um, when, you, when you put the needle in kind of roughly and pull it out and it bleeds internally, hemorrhaging. Yeah. underneath the surface sometimes you get a little bit of that if the person doesn't really know what they're doing but it was clear from to investigators that whoever had made that pinprick had was had experience in doing that's diabolical like that. that's so scary right it, it it sounds horrifying and they suspect that it was someone that knew michelle and it had to have been someone she trusted because they had to have administered this drug cleaned up and they knew that michelle would not have been able to do any of that Right. Yeah. Yeah. So detectives then start looking into how are they going to get some DNA from this? And they start testing the syringe caps because one of the detectives had remembered seeing a medical professional hold the cap between their teeth and in their mouth when giving an injection, which sounds really gross. But I've seen some like they pull the cap off. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they teach you not to do that. He remembered seeing someone do that and was like, hey, we got to try this because maybe there's some DNA on the caps from someone doing that. And the DNA analysts swab the needle caps for evidence and they find DNA. Hmm. So both the needle caps and the cover have both an unknown male DNA and then they have Michelle's Hmm. DNA on them, on the caps and the syringes. So then they know that whoever did this was in Michelle's apartment because both his DNA and hers was on these together. So then at that point, the death was officially classified as a homicide with propofol as the murder weapon. Whoa. And prosecutors and law enforcement had never seen a case like this before with a murder weapon in that kind mm-hmm. of a way. So it was sort of a new thing for it's them. It's like an intentional overdose. Um, right. But who would want to kill Michelle? Like, that was the big thing. They just had no clue as to who... She didn't have any enemies. Like, this was a girl that, like, loved and cared for everybody and went out of her way to make people comfortable and and happy and, like, tried to include everyone and everything. I bet this is a boy that, Um, like, she was too nice to and then, like, she rejected him. Right. Surprise, surprise, right? So, at that point, though, detectives know what propofol was used for and they find out that it's also used to treat other medical conditions. So, you know, like off-shelf type mm-hmm. uses, you know, you can use Botox for migraines and things like that. But they know that propofol can actually be used in small doses to treat severe migraines and has been okay. used. It's not prescribed usually, but there have been signs and cases where people have used propofol to treat migraine headaches. And Michelle was a lifelong migraine sufferer. Mm. She had very severe migraines. And investigators thought that perhaps Michelle had sought out some form of pain relief from someone other than her primary care doctor. Mm. So then they start looking at her friends and any one of them that's in the medical field. Surprise, surprise, right? And that's when they hit on Oliver O'Quinn. Oliver O'Quinn is a 30-year-old intensive care nurse. He works at the hospital on the campus of the University of Florida. He is the roommate, or he's a renter of a room in her best friend's house or apartment. Okay. I'm not really sure which one that is. So that's how the two met. 
It's interesting, though, because when investigators look into the relationship between these two, they discover that Michelle and Oliver were, were basically casual friends. Uh, everyone that knew Oliver described him as quirky and strange and a little off. He was a divorced father of a little girl. And people that saw the two of them together, because Michelle often invited him to come along mm -hmm. on different like bar outings and barbecues and different things, because she kind of, I think, felt sorry for him. Mm -hmm. So, but it seemed to everyone looking in from the outside that he would often really kind of go the extra mile. Like he went and borrowed a dog so he could go to the dog park with her and Duke, her dog, uh... on several occasions. And people thought that he was really weird and that Michelle kind of felt sorry for him. And like he was sort of one of her little injured animals that she needed to help. And he was kind of this slight. And again, I said that um, people that witnessed some, somebody saw him outside of her apartment and they said he was a kind of a slightly built man with glasses. Mm -hmm. And Oliver was slightly built and he wore glasses. Now, Michelle's phone records also showed that calls and texts from, there was like a lot of calls and texts from O'Quinn. And they could see that in some instances it bordered on harassment because he called her like 43 times in less than a month. <gasps> And he even called her nine straight days up until the murder and then never called her again after the murder. Oh, uh, yeah, that's the problem. So very, very highly suspicious. And then Oliver's job in intensive care would have given him the access to IV, needles, medication, all of that. But could they link him to the two bottles of the propofol? And the answer to that is yes. Vials have a national drug control number and a lot number on the actual bottle. And the two bottles that they found in the garbage can had those things as well. They had been shipped by McKesson out of Lakeland, Florida, and then shipped to Shands Hospital at the University of Florida during the specific time period that Oliver was employed there. And okay. when they get to the hospital, they're placed in an automated dispensing machine, kind of like a soda machine in the hospital in the ICU area. And when they trace it back to the specific machine, whoever gets the medication out has to punch in a patient number and their nursing number, their license mm -hmm. number, and then a bottle will drop out of the machine, kind of like a soda. That's smart. So they could trace those bottles back, and lo and behold, they came back to Oliver. He mm. had gotten those two specific vials of propofol. It was a direct link between him and the drugs used on Michelle. But in order to kind of put this case to bed they needed oliver's dna to match with the unknown male dna and the needle caps that were found in michelle's trash but when the police went to question oliver they discovered that he had taken off to ireland to escape prosecution mm. and he had actually even applied for a nursing license there now what's interesting is that i kind of read some varying accounts on this um forensic file said that they went to find him and he was in ireland already but when I looked at some other interviews, there was some suggestion that they had talked to him and said they wanted to question him. And he was like, okay, I'll come down to the station and then took off. Mm -hmm. I find it more plausible that they told him they needed to talk to him about the case and he took off. Right. That sounds like, like you hear about that happening a lot. Yes, most definitely. So you could tell he was not planning on coming back to the U S even though he had mm -hmm. a little girl 
there was some investigators that went and talked to him or talked to the ex-wife and the daughter. And evidently he'd gone and met with the ex-wife and the daughter and promised that he was going to take a trip, but he'd come back and take her to Disneyland within a certain amount of time. But mm-hmm. the fact that he'd applied for a nursing license and all that in Ireland, I mean, he was very methodical in what he did because Ireland does not extradite. They um, protest the death penalty and they will not, I mean, any kind of extradition from Ireland takes a really, really long time. And if it's a death penalty type case, which this one potentially could be because we have a premeditation type mm-hmm. issue that's involved as well, they're not going to extradite that person. Right. So even with a warrant, which they had in this particular instance, the process could be very, very long. And the police are starting to try to figure out, like, what was his motive for doing this? Why would he just kill her? It just seemed completely random and weird. Didn't make sense to them. And they're trying to figure out ways that they can get Oliver to come out of Ireland. So they try to smoke Mm -hmm. him out by contacting the Irish Times newspaper. And they took pictures of Oliver and Michelle and a synopsis of the case and then published it in the paper and told people that, Hey, we want this. We want to question this guy. And they published it on three separate occasions. And I think that kind of impacted him in his ability to get his nursing license and everything. So he took off, did not stay in Ireland. And he then flew to West Africa where they found him in Senegal and okay. as soon as he got in there, his passport was flagged, and they immediate, Senegal immediately turned him over to the U.S. law enforcement authorities. They were oh, wow. they were not playing. <laughs> they were like, we're done. Once in custody, they took his DNA by court order and compared it to the DNA on the cap, and lo and behold, it was a match. Mm. Oliver was then immediately charged with first-degree murder, and it's kind of ironic that he went to Africa and that he was found and brought back from Africa because that was... Michelle's place. Yeah. Like her goal to be there. And yeah, really, really interesting that that happened in that way. But investigators at that point still didn't have a motive and they started talking to everyone and it appeared that Oliver kept trying to insert himself into Michelle's life. She felt sorry for him and allowed him to come along with her group of friends as they did things like went out to eat, drinking, watching bands, going to games, things like that. She kind of felt sorry for him, but she thought he was harmless that was not the case. Um, an inmate in the prison where Oliver was being kept said that Oliver said that he had overheard her calling him an annoying little man. Uh-uh. And that kind of set him off. Plus, she was getting more serious with her boyfriend and he was going to move there so they could really make this relationship work. So I think it all kind of closed in on Oliver there. And he was like, if I can't have her, then no one can. Mm. And this had pissed him off and sent him into a rage. And he had also told this inmate that Michelle needed a, quote, long sleep, unquote. Oh my God. So prosecutors think that at that point, Oliver developed this plan to have his revenge. And he went and got the propofol and told her that the next time she had a migraine, he could come to her apartment and give her something heavy, more heavy duty that would get rid of the pain quickly. So uh. he did not give her any indication that he had overheard her talking crap about him or being mean or that she was going to, you know, get with his fiance and that there was any issue there. Just kind of played it off like it was no big deal and everything was normal and told her, hey, when you, next time you get a migraine, I'll come help you. And she trusted him. She had no indication that he was being creepy, stalking or weird. She just thought he was she was being nice to him. He was interested and she was right. like, no. 
He then got the propofol and got it ready and waited until Michelle got a migraine and to put his plan into action. So on the night of her death, investigators believe Michelle had had a migraine headache and called Oliver. He stopped by on his way home from work and injected Michelle with the lethal dose of propofol using the baby size needle. So the mark couldn't be obvious when they were doing the autopsy. Mm-mm. But Oliver made that one critical mistake and he used his teeth to pull the needle caps off, leaving behind that DNA evidence. Michelle probably died within seconds, um, and then Oliver put her arm under her body, so the needle mark would be hidden. Oh, it was that arm, okay. Yeah, and he threw the needles and the bottles into the trash and tossed them outside, and the numbers could be traced by that point. Um, Hmm. Oliver O'Quinn was tried for first-degree murder in 2006. His defense was... Yes, I went there. I gave Michelle medication to help her, and I accidentally overdosed her. My bad. So he's just basically trying to get away from the first-degree part. Yeah, basically. Prosecutors and the jury did not believe his BS story, though. They were like, yeah, "Yeah, no, you're guilty. He was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. This was the first reported case ever of propofol used as a murder weapon. And there were no eyewitnesses, so the entire case was solved with forensic science. And the jury took about two and a half hours to reach their verdict. So, slam dunk for the the jury and the verdict on this one with some really good investigative and forensic work here. Because they could have... They got lucky on some instances that that Mm -hmm. trash can didn't make it into the... Because the rest of the trash had been emptied and just a whole number of factors that kind of fell nicely into place in order for them to try this case and get a guilty verdict but it's really frightening to me that this person that she had allowed into her life so innocently thinking that he was harmless could do something like that yeah and that's that's the scary thing right that like women have to deal with all the time is you know like it's it's like the old trope like well men are afraid of getting rejected well women are afraid of getting killed like you know what i mean like it can turn that quickly if you if you reject somebody and there's literally no right or wrong way for you as the rejecting person to handle it because it's all about how that person perceives it and how they're going to respond to it and there's nothing that you could have done differently you know what I mean like it's not like they could she could have been like more forceful that probably would have pissed him off and she was clearly very nice to him and that made him think that she was interested in him and like it was it was a lose-lose situation for her with this guy and that's the scary thing about it yeah and it's like her best can you imagine how her best friend probably felt this was her best friend's kind of roommate mm. Like, and bringing them together. And, like, there were various incidences where people said that it was just creepy. Like, one particular time where there was a barbecue and they were all kind of sitting around this fire and Michelle would get up and move seats and he would follow her and sit in the seat next to her. And then she'd get up again and he would follow her again and sit next to her. And it just, it became sort of an inner joke between them where she kind of looked at one of her friends and winked and was like, yeah, watch this. Like, I'm going to move and he's going to move too. But can you imagine, like, how creepy that would be? Yeah, it can It can go from, like, a joke to very serious really quickly. This is a really full-on adult 30-year-old man, like... Yeah. And the thing is, what's also interesting about this guy is he kind of created 
a different life for himself than he actually lived. Like he had told people he was like a paratrooper and he was in the first group of people in Iraq and he had been what? overseas and had been in combat and he did these missions and he was a paratrooper and like he was a purple craw or, you know, whatever the different purple heart. He was a purple heart recipient and all this kind of stuff like that. And this is what he had told his roommate and all the people in their circle. But he wasn't like, he was none of those things. He was this little kind of petite sort of a man and felt like he needed to build up this false story about himself to make him larger than life. And he really wasn't, he was just a liar and a deceiver and a, a murderer. Mm. Frightening, extremely frightening. It's really scary. And I don't know, like, what do you do? Like, what do you do? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what you do to avoid that situation. And the thing is, like, I'm sure the roommate did a background check on him. There's nothing in a background check. Anybody can lie about that kind of stuff. And it's not going to come up in a background. He had no criminal background. So, like, how do you know when a person's going to snap? Like, it's just, it's kind of very, very frightening to me. That is really scary. On that note. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to go ahead and wrap the show up on that note. (laughs) This is the point in the podcast where we say so long. Farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media. We are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So find us there as well. We'll post some pictures of this as well. Um, I looked at pictures of this guy and it's just, you look at him and he doesn't look like he could be a murderer. It's just, it's so weird. They so rarely Um, do look like they'll be, they could be murderers, you know? No. And I cannot emphasize enough folks how important it is to us and our show. If you rate review and subscribe, it just really helps us get our ratings up. It helps us with potential advertising. It helps us show up higher on the lists with iTunes and Apple and all those sorts of things where, being higher on the list matters. It helps other people find us that may be interested in true crime as well. Um, And it really allows us as well to kind of get a gauge on what types of shows you guys actually want to hear. And you can also shoot us an email if you have different topics that you want us to talk about. We're more than happy to investigate and report on different things that you guys say that you would like to hear about. Absolutely. We're certainly open to that. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.